Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Hi, guys. Good morning. You've been promised a dry wit. I don't know what I have for you. My, my jokes kill in England. Um, <laughs> the past couple of weeks, um, Cameron has proven that a CTK sermon can be 30 minutes long. And so today, I took that as a challenge, and um, looking at my uh, manuscript here, it is the same as always. So I was, <laughs> I was thinking that maybe I could just say it faster and see, uh, see how that goes. Um, uh, with that in mind, uh, we're continuing our study of the gospel according to Luke. Um, And today in our passage, we're coming to this climax of uh, something that's been building for quite some time. And so there's a question that's been asked several times over the past few chapters. And the the gist of this question is, who is Jesus? Who is this man? So just if we go back the past couple of chapters, we see that um, after Jesus forgave the sins of the woman who washed his feet... um, we are told this in Luke 7:49. Those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, "Who is this who even forgives sins?" Among these are Pharisees and other people who were at this party. One chapter later, Jesus speaks to a storm, tells it to settle down, and it obeys him. And the disciples were amazed and afraid. And it says that they said, who is this that he commands even the winds and water and they obey him? Who is this? And then just earlier in chapter 9, we learn that Herod, the tetrarch, uh, he's heard about Jesus. And Luke tells us he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, which would probably freak out Herod who had John executed Um, by some, some were saying Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So Herod the Tetrarch is asking, who is this? The question has been building over some time, and I want to center our whole time today around this one question. Who is Jesus? And I believe that for all of us here, there is no greater question today or ever in our lives that we will answer than this one question, who is Jesus? And so I want to invite you on just a little journey into your past, into your history. I want you to imagine some key moments in your life when you were asked important questions and um, think about how those questions directed or changed the path of your life. So um, this could be fun, or it could send you on a path that ruins your week. Either way, let's do it. (laughs) So as I think about this, for me, in eighth grade, I was in uh, the weight room with the football team, and and another eighth grader asked me, let's say, if I had some marijuana, would you smoke it? Maybe you have a moment like that. (laughs) 
how about like even maybe before that, do you like me? Check, yes or no. Uh, about 14 years ago, I asked a girl named Danielle to marry me. She said yes. <laughs> uh, a couple years later, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to lead worship for a church plant in Mason, Ohio. I said yes to that. So you're here today, as you sort of think through your history, you're here today because of a series of yeses or nos, some convictions that you stood by, some that you maybe let go you're here also because maybe some leaps that you took because you, there wasn't a clear path and you just said, I'm going this way. Think about all of these important life-changing questions, but what we will see today is that nothing is more important or consequential for your life than how you answer Jesus asking you today, who do you say that I am? How you answer that question should change everything about your life. So with that in mind, that that will shape our time today, I want us to dig into the passage. And so we begin with this really wonderful statement um, in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. I don't know why Luke wrote it this way. It's odd. As I dug into some commentaries, I was hoping that someone might shed some light on how the Greek nuance would explain this whole sort of being alone together thing. Uh, but I didn't find that, so we'll just leave it there and move on. So he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. All right, so Jesus is talking to the disciples and asking, what do you hear out there about me? Crowds are gathering. What are you hearing that they're saying about who I am? This is a, a bit odd uh, for how I would normally sort of structure a sermon, but I want to jump straight to application today. And as I think about how we're going to apply this text, there are two sort of paths that we could take. And one is that um, the world has opinions about who Jesus is. Jesus asking his disciples these questions means that there is some value in us asking that question. What is the world saying about Jesus today? Uh, but what I want to spend most of our time on is the other sort of application, and that is uh, I want to talk to you if you are this crowd. So Jesus is drawing a distinction between the crowd and his disciples. And I hope that Christ the King is a place where some people who have not committed their lives to Christ are gathering with us are asking questions, are curious, and, and you come maybe week after week feeling like, I like these people, they've got, there's something here, but I'm not sure what. And if that's you, I want to talk to you uh, for a few minutes. So if you do not believe yet or at all what the Bible teaches about Jesus, that he's the one who was promised throughout the story of Israel, the one who came to take away the sin of the world, to reconcile all things to God, save sinners from the punishment of sin, I'm talking to you then, if that is you, I want to ask you, who do you say Jesus is? And so maybe you think Jesus was a religious teacher who had some decent sort of ethical program that we might follow to make our lives better, and that he belongs in a category with Confucius and Muhammad and Baha'u'llah and Joe Rogan or Greta Thunberg. 
Maybe you think Jesus was sort of a fourth century invention made up by power-hungry politicians, and that he wasn't even a real person. And just as likely, maybe you just haven't given it that much thought, but you know that you don't believe in all that Christian stuff. And so wherever you are, I want to challenge you to answer this question today. I want to challenge you not to leave the question unasked or unanswered. And so I want you to contend with some facts. One of those facts is that we are here today and people today all around the world are worshiping together a man called Jesus or Isus or Yeshua or something like that. But there is a man who existed that people are worshiping today. So there was a time when there was no church, no people gathering to worship the risen Messiah Jesus, and now there are those people. Who is this man then who sparked a movement that continues today. Who do you say he is? And so, just in a few minutes, I want to try to provoke you, maybe get the ball rolling. And what I know is that I won't answer every objection or question in the next few minutes. But I hope to be able to open your mind to the possibility that Jesus is who he says he is. I don't offer proofs, but I hope that I can at least provoke you to keep asking the question. And so some in the crowd today, some who do not believe in Jesus, would say Jesus is a myth, a fabrication of, a, of, of later centuries that leaders, particularly in the fourth century, uh, used to consolidate power and to manipulate people. They made him up to control people, that there never was such a person as Jesus. Now, the good news about this objection is that it's pretty easily answerable. Nearly all historians of the first century recognize that Jesus was a historical man. Uh, One such historian named Bart Ehrman, maybe some of you have heard that name, he's made a career out of discrediting the New Testament. So he's written books like Misquoting Jesus and How Jesus Became God, and in these books he's writing against the divinity of Christ, the authenticity of the resurrection. He is opposing the New Testament all over the place, and yet when it comes to... um, the historicity of Jesus, he wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus for the uh, the Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. He's essentially saying the historical evidence is clear. There was a flesh and blood person called Jesus. And though he's an agnostic atheist, and that that is the technical term for what he describes himself as whose whole career has been about putting the New Testament in doubt, he could not as a historian accept uh, the claims that there is no such person. Now, I want to give you a few uh, points here that Jesus was a historical man. Um, A few things. This is is quick, but one, a space-time event happened that spawned a movement that was initially called the way and is now called Christianity. Something happened that created the way of Christ, um, these people who followed him. Two, the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament account for these space-time events. They were written very close to the events themselves, and there were many of them, over 5,000 copies of manuscripts in the Greek. Three, 
So though Bart Ehrman and others like him say that there are hundreds of thousands of discrepancies between the copies of the manuscripts that we have, uh, people like him are misleading in that most of these uh, are things like misspelled words, um, synonyms, replacing other words, and things like that. Um, none of them contradict the clear message presented in the New Testament again and again. So the New Testament is redundant in its core teachings in a good way. And for uh, ancient non-Christian sources record evidence of Jesus. So Romans and Jews are writing also about this historical person. Um, one example, Tacitus was a Roman historian who recorded Jesus' execution in the early 2nd century. So not long after the events, a historian named Tacitus recorded these things. And so I found a website of some mythicists who claim, claim that Jesus is a myth, saying that, well, Tacitus wasn't actually reporting that this was historical. He was just saying what the Christians were already saying. Um, that, so, so what we're being asked to believe is that Tacitus, a Roman historian, is taking the word of the Christians about a Roman event and execution that happened less than 100 years before he was writing it. And so I don't know if you know what the reputation of the Christians were in the second century among the Romans, but it was not good, <laughs> uh, to say the least. So in this same passage, Tacitus calls Christians a class hated for their abominations, and he says that Jesus was persecuted for the evil, um, that after Jesus was executed, the evil, he calls it, spread from Judea and even into Rome, uh, where according to him, quote, all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. So the idea that this guy is taking the word of the Christians uh, is, uh, just, just doesn't pass the smell test. Um, and that's one example. We find evidence of other ancient Roman and Jewish historians uh, as well writing about the historicity of Jesus. And so just to sort of end this point, uh, there's a New Testament scholar named Michael Bird who addresses this idea that Jesus is a myth. So he said, I serve on the editorial board for the Journal of the Study of the Historical Jesus, where we have an editorial team of people from all faiths and none celebrated experts in their field, and I can tell you that the Jesus mysticist nonsense would never get a foot in the door of a peer-reviewed journal committed to the academic study of the historical Jesus. Okay, so <laughs> that should be an easy one. There was a man, flesh and blood, historical man named Jesus. That Jesus started a movement called uh, Christianity, but as we've just heard Michael Bird say, there are scholars who agree with this who are not Christians at all. And so this doesn't get us to faith in Christ. And so um, I want to turn to something that C.S. Lewis gives us, um, a, uh, a way of thinking about who is this man, Jesus. Once we say there was a man, what kind of man was he? So C.S. Lewis um, says that because Jesus claimed to be God, we have three options. Either he was a liar who knows very well that he isn't, but he's deceiving people. Or he's a lunatic who thinks he is God, but he is not. Or he is the Lord. He is what he claims to be. So either Christ, the one who claims to be uh, from the Father, says, I do nothing except what I and the Father am one. He says at one point, uh, he uses I am. 
which is the name of God. He's claiming to be God. And so either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is, in fact, the Lord. Um, Now, I'm aware that uh, this argument falls short for many people. It's easy to just say, well, how do we know that Jesus really claimed these things? Maybe it was made up and we shouldn't trust what the words of the New Testament. Others may say, well, he, maybe he was a lunatic. We can point to historical examples of uh, crazy people who have led others astray. Um, what I want to suggest is that what Lewis gives us, though maybe imperfectly, is that Jesus must exist somewhere on a spectrum from he is everything the New Testament claims he is, to he is a total, total fraud. So there are points all along this spectrum, and I'm not going to try to engage with all of it, but I want to make a couple points um, to you today, if you are an unbeliever, and then we'll move on. One is that when you consider that there was not a church, and there were some events that happened, and then there was a church, there was a people who worshiped the risen Messiah And, by the way, we know that they were worshiping Jesus as the risen Messiah and as God from very early on, from the earliest days of the church. So when you consider this historical shift, the best explanation is that the Bible account is accurate. That there was a man who claimed to be the Messiah of God, that that man was crucified under Pontius Pilate, um, which Tacitus records, was dead and buried, and that man rose on the third day and appeared to many And the disciples worshipped him as the risen Lord because they saw the holes in his hands. There's a whole lot more we could say about the evidence for the historicity of Jesus and that the Bible is true. Um, What I will just say is we'll leave it there and I'll invite you to coffee to explore it more. I would love to uh, continue the conversation. There is a second point, though, um, and that is uh, something else C.S. Lewis said that personally I find to be more uh, profound and more provocative. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so, really, historical proofs and logical arguments don't make people Christians. So they might be able to help. If, if you're thinking that Christians are small-minded, illogical people, then these kinds of things can help open your mind. Um, I find it helpful even that Bart Ehrman, uh, who wants to claim to be a highly rational person, says he rejects Christianity because of the problem of evil. He says, I can't believe in a God, uh, a good God, when there's evil in the world. And so as he comes to the Bible, there's, there's no proof, there's no historical evidence that would, that would cause him to see um, the truth that there is a God and Jesus was raised from the dead. He comes already to the text saying, because there is no God, how can I make sense of this passage? And so uh, my point is that for most people... Who rejecting faith or denying Christ is not a matter of um, reason or logic. It's much deeper. And so like C.S. Lewis, I want to invite you to shine the light of Scripture around in your world. Like maybe try it on. Like a, you know, does this coat fit? For me, uh, as I come to Scripture and I see the through line from start to finish of Scripture, of sin, the promise of a Messiah, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, His promise of a future, new creation, what I see is a couple things. One is the the unity of Scripture, which is undeniable and beautiful. We see that it has one author, God, who tells us about ourselves and explains our world better than anything could. 
And there's something else that happens. <laughs> so it helps us understand ourselves better. And so as as we think about the unity of Scripture, the beauty of the gospel, it not only explains our world, but I think it explains our our deepest longing, our need for a sense of identity. And so um, it isn't a matter of sort of external proofs, but it is a matter of shining the light of the gospel into your own heart and seeing if it makes sense of your sin, your need for redemption. Um, the gospel story makes sense of our world and ourselves better than anything else. I want to invite you then to try on the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. To see that the world is broken by sin, which shows itself in a broken mess all around our world. The problem of sin isn't just out there, but that we see those same impulses that have broken our world in our own hearts. That that is called sin. That they're, but like defining the world, I mean, I think we can all agree on that, right? The world is broken, but there is hope in Christ. So the Christian story sheds light on these things, and it also answers our deepest longing, our deepest need uh, for a father, our deepest need to understand ourselves. As I say these things, I'm aware it's... uh, if, if you come not believing, you come maybe frustrated, angry, uh, haven't answered all your objections, I would invite you again to consider uh, that Jesus is the Christ and see if it makes sense of the world. But I also will just invite you one more time. Uh, reach out to me. Let's get coffee. If you don't like coffee, we can get something else. So moving on in our text, we see that Jesus is going to ask the same question, but he's going to direct it toward his disciples. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So I want to ask you the same questions, uh, question, brothers and sisters. Uh, If you are in Christ, the question to you is, what do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? And so this may seem straightforward. If we're Christians, we agree with Peter. Jesus is the Christ of God. And yes, of course, But I think that very often we are like Peter. We make a good and right confession, but we don't really and fully know what we're saying. So Peter's confession is perfect. Jesus is the Christ. Just a reminder, Christ is the Greek word that just means Messiah. It's the same word for Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah who has come. But as we keep reading in this passage, it's going to sound like Jesus is kind of like shifting the topic but he's not. So uh, let's read it together. And I want you to just imagine, if you could just maybe engage your imagination a little bit, imagine that you're Peter. You've just been the first disciple to come out and say what maybe everybody's been kind of suspecting and thinking, that Jesus Jesus is the Messiah. And, and, And I'm one of his followers. Like, what an amazing, I mean, and then Jesus, we know from the other Gospels, it says, like, flesh, does, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Father revealed this to you. I mean, so he's, like, you just imagine Peter, like, grinning, like, he's, like, living large because he's, he said this thing. Jesus has praised him. And now, with that sort of in mind, um, let's keep reading. 
Jesus talking, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So if you imagine the grin on Peter's face, just sort of turned to kind of a confused, like, suffer, be rejected, killed. Matthew tells us that Peter did not like what he heard. So in Matthew's uh, parallel version of this story, he says that uh, Peter says to Jesus, this shall never happen to you. So again, imagining Peter answering, you're the Messiah, the one whose throne will be established forever, whose kingdom will not end. How are you saying you're going to be killed? And he rejects this idea that Jesus is going to suffer and be killed. So his face turns from this big grin to like this confused thing to like, no, and then we get also from parallel uh, version of the story. Jesus then says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So now imagine Peter's face, right? It went from like, I'm doing good, to like, what? To, oh no, like, Jesus has just called me Satan. So, church, brothers and sisters, as we consider this question, who do we say Jesus is, I want to suggest that we are like Peter. We say the right words, we make the good and right confession, but we don't fully understand what we're saying. The temptation for us is the same temptation as it was for Peter. So keeping those things in mind, let's read the end of the passage. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So here's the question for us, church. When we say Jesus is the Christ, are we truly ready to follow a crucified Lord? And are we ready to take up our cross daily to follow him? Are we ready to lose our lives? Or maybe are we a little ashamed of the Jesus who is bloodied and mocked on the cross? So if you were here the last time I preached, um, you might be getting a sense of deja vu. Now, I know that you all remember it because my sermons are so memorable. Also, I know that you study the notes from them diligently for weeks. But just in case you weren't here then, a quick reminder. So this was in chapter 7. John the Baptist was in prison, and he sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one they were waiting for or if they should keep looking. So they're asking him, are you the Messiah or aren't you? And Jesus told them to look around. Report to John all that you see, that uh, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, good news is being preached to the poor. Go report back to John, but he left out this key aspect of the Messiah, his Messiahship. He did not say the prisoners were being freed, and it's a clear message to John, which is, yes, I'm the Messiah, but you're going to die in prison, 
And then, if you remember the way Jesus sort of wraps this up, he says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I'm the Messiah. You're going to die in prison. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And it's, it's amazing that we see this exact same pattern here. So we see, yes, Peter, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah you expect. I will be rejected. I will be killed. And if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross daily, deny yourself. To be my disciple, you have to lay down your life. And then Jesus says something very similar to what he told John's disciples. Whoever's ashamed of me and my words, of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. So it's, are you offended by the cross? Are you offended by Jesus' humility? The call for us today is to repent of our false expectations of Jesus as Messiah. So if you want a Jesus who you can tack on to your life to help you live better, to be more moral or a more well-rounded person, that is not Jesus the Christ. And there are a whole lot of ways people try to make Jesus a Messiah in our own image. And I don't know what temptations you have or what might be represented here today, whether your temptation is to make Jesus a Republican tough guy or a Democrat hippie, a genie to grant all your wishes or a moral teacher a progressive activist, or a religious leader. What we see in these and most of our false views about what it means that Jesus is the Christ come from our desire to make Jesus a means to our own ends. Hear me, church. Jesus is not a means to an end. I know, like, you know, I, so when I say, like, Democrat, uh, Democrat and Republican, it's like anxiety goes up, like, oh, we probably shouldn't get political... So it's really quiet. So let me say again, Jesus is not a means to an end. And then somebody say amen. amen. Jesus is the end, the, the goal or the telos of all creation and all history. His glory, the glory of Christ is the point of everything. If we want Jesus to serve other ends, he refuses And hear me, church, we find out, like Peter, that when we make Jesus a means to serve other ends, we are playing the puppet of Satan. And the sad thing about our our attempts to contain Jesus in this sort of false Messiah box is how incredibly far they fall short of the majesty of Jesus. So Peter is about to find out who Jesus really is. We're going to see this next week. I don't want to step on, uh, I think it's Michael talking to us next week about the Mount of Transfiguration, but Peter is going to see Jesus revealed in his shining glory, talking to Moses and Elijah. He's shining like lightning, the text says us, tells us, and then we hear a voice from the Father saying, this is my son, listen to him. The glory of Christ, the end, the goal of all creation, and we try to make him a means to our own ends. So the father says, listen to him. Peter, listen to him. And what does he say? What does the man who the father says, listen to, say? He says, I will be rejected and killed. But he also says, I will be raised. And it's interesting because I'm not sure if Peter knew what to make of I will be killed. And then finally, we come to this, this last passage, which I think ties everything together nicely for us. 
But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So I don't know exactly what Jesus had in mind here. Um, Maybe he's referring to what's about to happen. Some of them are about to see Jesus transfigured on a mountain. I would say, uh, does that count as the kingdom of God? Maybe it does. These disciples are also going to see Jesus raised from the dead, ascend to the Father. They're going to see the Holy Spirit come like a great wind and rest over them like tongues of fire. And they're going to see the nations who are gathered in Jerusalem hearing the gospel in their own languages. They're going to see those people devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to eating together, to sharing their money and possessions. They're going to see sick healed and miracles like prisoners having their chains just fall off and walking out the front door. So whatever Jesus specifically meant, uh, he is talking to people who will see the kingdom of God among them. And I want to sort of begin to wrap up with this encouragement, something that we can know for sure, and that is that the Messiah that we follow is both a crucified and humble Savior and a glorified and majestic warrior. He says both things. I'm going to the cross, and if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. And he says, you will see the kingdom come. So Jesus will say in just a few chapters, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The one who has just said, I will be rejected and killed, said, I will come in a cloud with power and glory. So Jesus is a warrior king, and he has come to claim ground for his kingdom. He's come to defeat that ancient serpent who rebelled against God and deceived Adam and Eve. But there's a plot twist. How does he do this? How does he defeat the ancient serpent, the devil? Audience participation. The cross. So, the plot thickens. The thing Peter wouldn't see coming, even though Jesus told him it was going to happen, is that the cross is the place of Jesus' victory over the powers of hell. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what other gospel writers tell us. So we know from some of the other gospels that this conversation is happening in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi at the time was the center of pagan worship. That there was a river flowing out of a rock, and this place was known as the Gates of Hades. It's where there was just this center of wickedness and pagan worship. There was a, a temple to the god Pan who was known for sexual uh, worship and sexual immorality. It is in this place, this very center of pagan wickedness, uh, that Jesus gives Simon the name Rock or Peter. Is anybody like old enough and Christian enough to remember Petra, the band? Petra prays. It's like a Christian hairband. <laughs> Jesus names Peter, names Simon Petra or Rock. And he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
So the cross is not the place of Jesus' defeat. It is the place where he takes upon himself the sin of the world, but he is not overcome by the world. He overcomes sin and the world, as Colossians 2.14 tells us, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So these are, in Colossians, the words of Paul who holds together this really wonderful news about our salvation and redemption, Jesus' work on the cross for us, and his victory over the powers. And so if we keep reading, the next verse says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Peter, in the end, gets his victorious warrior king, Messiah. He gets in the end the Messiah with flaming eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. He gets what we see in Psalm 2, the image of a king ruling the nations with an iron scepter. That is all true. And Peter finally gets those things, but he doesn't get it without the humbling death on a cross. So as Jesus predicted, he was rejected, beaten, mocked, and killed. I want to sort of tie all this together and end uh, with a scripture from Paul's letter to the Philippian church. What I want you to see as we read this is that it perfectly holds together Jesus' humility and his majesty. It holds together all of these things with the cross in the center as the sign of his obedience and the sign of his victory. We may not think of it now, but it is truly amazing that Christians own the cross as a symbol of, of our very identity, this cross, which was a Roman execution tool. And so as, I'm going to read this and then I'll pray and we'll be done. But um, my prayer is that we would be people who are eager to follow a humble, crucified, and yet majestic and risen Messiah, the Christ who is. Uh, hear this and then I'll pray. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son, who is our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, our friend. Christ is the Messiah, and that message is more wonderful than we could imagine. The fact that Christ is the one who was promised to be the seed of Eve, the son of David, the blessing of Abraham, The promises that are fulfilled in Christ are more wonderful and numerous than we can know. And as your people who are gathered here today to worship you, Jesus, as the risen Messiah, as the Christ, would you increase in us our faith and our knowledge that you are more wonderful and glorious than we could know? I I repent of the ways that I've tried to make Jesus and his Messiahship something that is a means to an end or something that works for me or works for some Uh, some other agenda besides the glory of Christ that 
by him and for him all things were created. There was nothing that was made that was not made by Christ. There was nothing that was made that wasn't made for his ultimate glory. May that be the end of our, our lives as well. And may we, each one of us, submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ in such a way that all other agendas, all other ambitions fall away. That whatever we do gets recast and re-understood as a means to an end, and that end is your glory. That our work, our families, our advocacy for whatever good thing is not an end in itself, but, an, but a means to your ultimate glory. May that be true uh, among us as people of CTK. Father, as we come to the table, we remember that it is your broken body and your shed blood that we proclaim your death until you come again. That in this meal, we proclaim a humble and broken Messiah. That we know that there is resurrection. We know that you were just the first fruit, the firstborn from the dead, and that we will also be raised, that we will inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And yet we do not have the risen Messiah without the cross. And I, I pray that we would wear the sign of the cross proudly, that we would glory in our weakness. And, uh, and as we do that, may we stand out from the world. May we be a peculiar and elect set-apart people for your own name and for your glory. I thank you for all these wonderful things, Lord, and I pray it in your name. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.